Welcome to episode five of NAB Digital Next, where we're focusing on RegTech and SubTech, the opportunities with new technologies in support of regulatory compliance and supervisory oversight. I'm Brad Carr of NAB's Digital Data and Analytics team, and our special guest today is Bill Cohen. I got to know Bill when he was Secretary General of the Bail Committee for Banking Supervision through the important years of the Bail 3 reforms. Bill has since returned to the Washington DC, Northern Virginia area, and he has a number of interesting directorship and advisory roles across the world, including as chairman of the IFRS Advisory Council and on the boards of MUFG, China Construction Bank, Suede Labs and Batten Systems, among others. Bill also produced an important book last year, RegTech, SubTech and Beyond, Innovation in Financial Services, which we're going to talk about throughout our discussion. We'll hear from Bill, and then my colleague Deb Algio will join me to add some reflections on Bill's insights, including on how these might play out closer to home in our market. But firstly, Bill, thanks for joining us and welcome to NAB Digital Next. Brad, thank you for the invitation. I'm always pleased to speak with you. It's uh, it's great to reconnect. Bill, if we could start with, with some of the common challenges that both financial institutions and their regulators and supervisors often find in, in the way that they're grappling with the changes ushered in by new technologies, learning those new technologies, finding paths to test and safely implement, keeping pace with the external environment. With your experiences, both as a former regulator and also now on the board of some of the, the major leading global banks, are there particular themes or issues in innovation that most stand out for you? Yeah, it's been very interesting to see how this has evolved for um, supervisors and regulators. I mean, there's been so much focus on financial institutions trying to keep pace with technology, technological changes. And I, I think the, the imperative for those in the official sector, central banks, regulatory authorities, uh, those with prudential oversight, I, I think that has flown somewhat beneath the radar because, as I said, it is an imperative. And... There is the expectation, the, really the, the necessity for them to keep pace with the use of technology to make the oversight process more efficient, to manage their own risks, and to, you know, to engage in a, a more efficient oversight process than pre-technology. Most of the regulatory authorities that I am in contact with, and I, I am pretty, <laughs> I'm pretty much still part of the Regulatory community, in, in, in a way, it's a close-knit community, and I used to deal with with virtually all of the um, regulators and supervisors around the world. I think there is a clear recognition that they need to do more to leverage the available technology to, uh, as I said, to make that process more efficient and, and more effective. And the book that you mentioned, which was, was very nice of you to mention uh, the book I, <laughs> I edited, I think there are a number of examples where You've got central banks or regulatory authorities from emerging markets, as well as those from the United Kingdom, from you know, the European Central Bank and its uh, supervisor, single supervisory me uh, mechanism. There are examples all over the world where central banks and supervisory authorities have recognized that imperative to use technology. So it's it's been it's not just emerging markets, it's not just advanced economies. It really is anyone within the official sector. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I want to continue delving into to RegTech and, and some of those themes and perhaps ask you about some of the, the particular anecdotes or things that have stood out for you from the, the book. But if I could ask you one broader supervisory construct uh, question before we do that, 
When we look at, at risk management capabilities, there are, I think, quite established frameworks and processes that, that banks and insurers use and that their supervisors expect across credit risk, market risk, operational risk, insurance underwriting risk. We can question at times whether those are necessarily strong or mature enough, but they are at least, I think, quite established and, and, and recognised. But do you think that firms and their supervisors are necessarily putting enough focus on what we might call strategic risk or, or business risk in the sense of whether their, their going concern will endure amidst what is really a, a very rapidly changing environment with new entrants and, and changing customer preferences? I think that's a I think that's an excellent point. And I do agree that not enough focus is on strategic risk or or business risk. And I guess that's because you, know, you mentioned credit risk, market risk, operational risk, all pretty quantifiable. Strategic risk, business risk, much longer fused. When I was stepping down from my my role as Secretary General, I really went out of my way to say, you know what, the Basel III framework, it's really important. Um, I think we've made some really important changes to it, but I don't want Basel III to, to crowd out important things like better risk management, better corporate governance, improved risk culture, and certainly prudential oversight. So I, I think those things are just as important. They're important supplements to the quantifiable risks. And uh, now that I've got the benefit of, of having been on some boards for big organizations as well as for startups, Having effective strategic risk planning and business risk, this this really trumps you know everything. This is this is long term. In many cases, it is uh, existential. So really, not enough focus is placed on those activities. And you know, bring this to bring this back to technology, the importance of having high quality, timely data to help make those decisions. If you're a uh, you know in the C-suite or even on the board of some of these firms. You've got to have good data. Things are changing so quickly. The competitive landscape is changing so quickly. And you've got to have good data and good analytics. And so I, I think it is, it is vastly important, Brad, that um, continued focus be placed on strategic risk and business risk. Bill, I think you make a couple of really, really great points there. Firstly, that the the BAL framework and, and regulation more broadly needs to be thought of as the the the, the minimum and it's it's necessary but not sufficient and and that we must not get into the trap of being tunnel vision purely around those particular standards or expectations and that we need to to have effective risk management that does look beyond that as as well but also i think the the point around uh, around data and and i had an interesting conversation recently with a canadian bank's chief risk officer who talked about how our customers' preferences have just changed faster and, and in a way that is less predictable than than in previous times. And I think your point about data is is really important there on a couple of levels, Bill, you know, partly in terms of, of risk data, but also in terms of mining what data you have to look for some of those trends, look for some of those forward leading indicators that might better position you to be able to you know, predict where the market's moving and, and how you effectively manage your business in the face of that. Uh, and Brad, just so um, you know, I can show you I'm a, um, a former regulator, I will quickly temper my remarks by saying, yeah, but don't over-rely on the analytics. You know, there's still such an important role of uh, human judgment. So the high-quality, timely data, the right set of analytics, they're so important for making a, a good decision. But at the end of the day, it is human judgment and a, and a person's decision that should drive that change in strategy or risk profile. 
Yeah, great reminder of, of the importance of bringing those human and, and data sides together. Bill, maybe if we can delve a bit more specifically within to the reg tech space and, and we see banks and insurers and asset managers adopting technologies that, that help them to deliver on the risk management and compliance and regu- regulatory obligations more efficiently and effectively. From the work you've done, both through the book and, and your other experiences, is there a specific area where you think the industry has made the most progress or perhaps use cases that you've found particularly noteworthy? I think so, so much attention is paid to some of the advances in technology for purposes of better risk management. Uh, you know, I think of the use of artificial intelligence for underwriting, credit underwriting. You know, Institutions, firms can, can make decisions in, in minutes, if not seconds, whereas back in the day when I was a, um, a loan officer many, many years ago, you know, this is a it's a cumbersome process that would take lots of time. So I think I think some of the advances around AI have been terrific. Modeling, again. So I you know I I think of terms of credit risk, just because that's the uh, more substantial risk that most banks face. Some of the uh, loan loss provisioning practices have have really improved. Just the the overall credit management process has really improved because of better technology, earlier identification of risks. Um, I, so I think that's that's been one of the most uh, important areas. The, the other thing, though, that I have found really interesting, you know, there's a lot of attention paid now, rightfully so, on operational efficiency. And one of the ways that firms are becoming more operationally efficient is through technology. And, and uh, the example I'm thinking of is regulatory reporting. Using natural language processing, for example, or machine learning. For a firm that does business across borders, that's subject to different uh, sets of regulations. I mean, for example, Basel III, you've got the Basel III global standard, but you can have slightly different, or in some cases, vastly different interpretations at the local level for how that how those standards are implemented in rule or regulation. So that makes, that makes regulatory reporting quite a challenge, and it also makes it expensive. Some of the technology that's becoming available for regulatory reporting really is an immense savings, both in terms of time and uh, in, uh, human resources. So that's that's something that I, I hadn't seen when I was uh, in Basel. I'm seeing more and more of it now. Yeah, I think that fits with some of the, the great work that, that some regulators have done around increasingly automating and, and digitalizing their reporting frameworks. I think the, uh, the UK authorities in particular have been great leaders in that. But as you say, that ability to look at you know the correlations within your credit book, some of the early warning indicators, some of the supply chain disruptions that may then come to affect your borrowers, AI has been a, a great enabler for a lot of innovations there. Let me add to that. You know, people say, "Well, I was in Basel for 20 years, and especially the latter part where we developed and finalized Basel III." I, I think that was vastly important. But I, I think the one thing that we did that had probably more impact than Basel III was BCBS 239, Risk Data Aggregation and Risk Reporting. And there there was so much focus on better data, on data governance and architecture. And I really think that the the data requirements that banks are now subject to, the the bar was raised and most banks around the world struggled to meet all the principles set out in BCBS 239. But without a doubt, they're doing much better today than they did when the principles were released in 2013. And again, going back to the governance, the risk management question, 
the ability to have real-time data and the the analytics that accompany that data is so important. And now banks are are better developing their their data capabilities to have that real-time data or close to it, not only from a risk management and governance perspective, but also supervisors are using that for prudential purposes. And I think back in 2015, 2014 even, we were talking at the Basel Committee, we were talking about having that real-time data available for prudential purposes. And and banks, uh, for many banks, that just wasn't possible. It's changed. I think the expectation is, um, and I hope that continues, that if you're a large bank, global or domestic, systemically important bank, you should have that kind of capability. And and, uh, I think banks have done much, much better in that regard. It's It's a really interesting perspective you raise about 239, and I'm glad you bring that up, Bill. I chuckle a little bit at the reference to 239 because I always thought that was the one and only bail paper which was most commonly known by its number. But but it, I think it's it's an interesting perspective that whilst it didn't have any of the, if you like, the the controversy or the attention of, of the bail three reforms, I think you're probably right that, that in, in an enduring sense, it, it is probably going to have a more impactful legacy through the industry. And, and, and you're right that... If I think of people like Yako Grobler, that was the first RAND CRO, I remember him speaking at the Risk Mines Conference once about how 239 galvanised us to start using the data in ways that we probably always should have for some of our constructive commercial initiatives, things around how we can serve our customers better. But but 239 forced us to get all of that together from a, a risk management and regulatory perspective that probably opened our eyes or, or became a catalyst for for other you know, commercial and constructive uses of data. And I, I think you're right. It's a really important part of, of, of that legacy. Perhaps um, w- citing some of those initiatives where we have seen a lot of great progress in the RegTech side, are there other areas of RegTech where you'd like to see more progress? Uh, for for instance, where banks and insurers could be doing more to increase or accelerate their adoption and deployment? Well, you know, I've, I've focused on the the risk management side, the delivery of financial services, that's always important to, you know, to, to maintain competitiveness with, with unregulated firms. But I haven't mentioned the compliance aspect. And let's face it, AML, KYC will always, <laughs> for the foreseeable future, will continue to be an area where technology can be leveraged to help with compliance with the, those standards. That's really difficult. I mean, the technology, no question, has gotten much, much better, but it's still uh, it's still an area that trips up many, many banks. So part of that, um, at least from the bank's perspective, part of it is that, well, the rules of the road continue to change. And a lot of the past efficiencies are exactly that. There were things in the past. And moving forward, banks like to say, well, you know, we, we've got better systems We've got more experienced staff. So I, I do think compliance, particularly for AML KYC, is, uh, is still an area that needs to improve, although by all indications that uh, that does seem to be the direction of travel. There's an enormous amount of investments been going into that across the, the global industry, but it is an area that, that you're right, we do need to continually keep getting better and, and certainly the bad actors are getting better and, and we need to, to uh, I hate to think of it as an arms race, but there is kind of that element to it, perhaps. I really liked an example that former Scotiabank CRO Daniel Moore uh, cited that in the first half of 2021, 
Scotiabank had used its AI and machine learning capabilities to, to break up 27 human trafficking rings. And, and Scotia have probably been one of the, the world leaders in that technology. But linking a little bit to what you said earlier, Bill, around the adoption of AI, putting that together into the KYC, AML and, and financial crime space, you know, there are probably great opportunities for hopefully more of us to do what Scotia have done and, and contribute uh, into that agenda. And Brad, that's that's a, um, a really interesting point because that touches on, you know, that, that brings to mind the whole ESG agenda, and that's human trafficking, modern slavery. That's that's important, you know, important topics within that that S, the social dimension of ESG. And if you think of it uh, even more broadly, so um, take the E component. Then now we're talking about sustainability and green finance, and that's certainly an area where banks, insurance firms, pensions, asset managers, that's that's certainly an area that is very much in flux, is moving really very quickly. And one of the big constraints is data, of course, consistent data sets. You know, the standards are only just starting to come out. As you mentioned from the outset, I do some, uh, I chair a group, the IFRS Advisory Council, and with the, the establishment of the International Sustainability Standards Board, which is underneath the IFRS umbrella, so there's the IASB and now the ISSB, you know, the, the sustainability disclosure standards are coming down the road, in some cases quicker than some had expected, but they are under development. But data continues to be one of the biggest constraints. And then when you think about things like scope three emissions, for a, uh, for a bank to try to assess emissions downstream from its its own lending, it's an incredible data exercise or mm. data challenge is probably the better way to express it. So I think for um, for you know the whole set of ESG issues, again, it brings us back to to data, IT capabilities, analytics, and this will continue to be quite a challenge for um, any firm in the financial space. Definitely a huge area of focus here at NAB and, and in one of our future episodes of, of NAB Digital Next, we'll talk a bit about carbon place and about satellite imaging. A lot of great things we're doing around using some of these, these satellite imaging, looking at the carbon sequestration capabilities on our agribusiness clients' uh, land and and linking that together with carbon place for the the uh, the trading of, of carbon credits globally. Um, there's a lot there to do in terms of bringing together some of those analytics that, that you talk about there, Bill, together with the the market mechanisms to hopefully enable a, a more efficient and sustainable financial market. Bill, I'd like to close by returning some of these issues to a, a policy context and, and the work led in places like Baal around promoting coordination. You know, we've sometimes seen the challenge where a lot of regulators and supervisors have very narrow mandates that are specific to traditional sectoral boundaries. And increasingly, a lot of the activities, a lot of the new service offerings in the market, a lot of the risks as well, tend to straddle both finance and other areas of technology that might sit outside of, of our industry. So there's a very complex labyrinth where financial regulators have this quite unenviable task of working where their space intersects with the domain of data and privacy and competition commissioners and, and probably more. I think global financial regulation and, and the bodies that, that you've led have really had a, a great role in of, of generating cooperation um, probably more so than, than any other industry across the globe. I was just wondering if you think there's there's any particular learnings you could cite around how we can solve some of these financial and data and privacy policy intersections. I think you're right, uh, you're right Brad. You touched on 
really the enormous amount of interaction there is now between different players in the official sector. And you know, during the global financial crisis, a lot of banks were criticized for managing their risks in, uh, in silos. Well, you, the same was certainly true of central banks and prudential supervisors, that even within the same organization, or those responsible for uh, overseeing individual uh, institutions, were they aware of growing uh, concentrations of risk? Probably not, even though the data was there and it was, it was discussed, analyzed in other parts of the organization. As a result, there is so much more interaction now between those with prudential responsibilities, those from um, payment system oversight, the market regulators, the insurance supervisors, so that this is really a positive outcome. And of course, uh, as you as you touched on, the um, those with consumer protection responsibilities. You know, I, I just quick example. I think of the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK. They, they they've had a very aggressive agenda here in the US, where I am based, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. These organizations, really, within the last couple of years, and and this is you know, does it stem from the focus, the global focus on ESG, particularly the S dimension? I'm not sure. I just know it, it's very costly for banks to run afoul of consumer protection rules and regulations, data privacy issues. You know, the, the European Union has done tremendous work on data privacy, probably one of the first to really take the lead in going down that road. I, I just think from a, an official sector perspective, it is so important that there is this, this interaction between different regulators. And I've seen it firsthand. There is that kind of interaction. And of course, it's such an important area for financial institutions. You know, I think many see it as a risk. Uh, I think it really could be used as an opportunity. And let's face it, you know, the use of data and the availability of good quality data, like we were discussing before, on which to base decisions, both near term and broader strategic questions, to have customer data and to use it properly and to protect it uh, appropriately, it's just such an important part of uh, running any financial institution these days. Fantastic to hear there from Bill. And I think it's really striking that when we reflect on the highlights of his career, the times leading the, the Bail Committee and the, the leadership across global regulation for, for banks, the fact that, that he his mindset has very much shifted, uh, like ours, to these topics across the digital economy, across the adoption of, of safe paths for innovation, and on using data to ensure that we improve the overall robustness and stability of the financial system. Um, it's really exciting to see, and also to note the, the legacy that he calls out of BCBS. 239 and how that's really helped to, to lift the bar. With our local context in mind, I'm now joined also by my colleague Deb Algio. Deb is the Director of Innovation here at NAB and she's also a member of the RegTech Association's Industry Advisory Committee, facing directly into a number of the issues that Bill has highlighted. Deb, welcome and, and firstly could I ask you what stood out most for you amongst Bill's remarks? Thanks, Brad, and, and thank you for having me. Um, love being part of these conversations. Very passionate about RegTech and learning from Bill's 20 years of experience. So um, thanks for the opportunity. I think if I reflect on um, the conversation with Bill, definitely the word of the day is data, which is not totally surprising. Um, Bill mentioned the need to comply with new and existing regulations, which is sort of constantly changing but also responding to that with high quality data um, and also analytics. 
and how we also might think about how we mint this data from within our businesses effectively. Uh, Bill, you know, he talked about uh, the great, it was great to hear about the role that it will play in, you know, risk management and operational efficiency and, and think about Basel uh, three and think about the global nature of the regulation and just how important that data is um, for that in particular, you know, crossing borders and, and thinking about data, uh, not just in sort of one segment of an experience, but across that, that entire value chain. So um, I also thought something that was really interesting in, in Bill's comments was his acknowledgement about the importance of human judgment in this process too. So not solely relying on, on data, um, but also what's the role of our subject matter experts um, in analyzing that data. And Deb, RegTech is a very broad space, um, but could I ask you, are there particular innovations that you're seeing at the moment that are especially noteworthy? or indeed particular areas from a NAB perspective that are most standing out for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, the, the reg tech market is absolutely astonishingly large. I was reading a stat the other day that we're looking at the sort of increase of expenditure in the reg tech market to $127 billion. So plenty of innovation and exciting activities going on. Um, as I'm in innovation, I put, might put a bit of an innovation spin on it. So how I answer this question is really largely around thematic areas and, and big market changes. Firstly, the treatment and adoption of digital currencies and assets. So this is the first time we're introducing a new asset class. So it's not so a small undertaking. Secondly, something that Bill mentioned as well is ESG, which is such a massive undertaking in itself. And Bill talked about sort of the E aspect, environmental or climate and social considerations. So thinking about how we help our business and businesses do the right thing for the environment, for people, and how you govern that across your business and, and make sure it's done. So, uh, you know, as we sort of reflect on what Bill was saying, both of these areas will come with new regulations. We're seeing some of them sort of come through now. Uh, this will mean there's going to be quite significant undertakings of regulated entities. And as Bill was mentioning, reporting expectations. From a NAB perspective there, we have uh, Amber Data, which is an investment that our NAB Ventures team. Um, so Amber Data, really, really interesting cloud-based blockchain and crypto asset platform. Uh, which basically gives financial institutions the ability to collect and look at uh, comprehensive data and insights into blockchain networks and uh, decentralized finance. So if I think about the reg tech lens there, it's our ability to look and research trading, risk, analytics, reporting, and compliance. So extremely powerful. Um, if I think about the ESG lens, you know, this is an incredible opportunity and challenge that the market faces into and something I think is really uh, interesting to pull out of Bill's comments is the data aspect. So being able to actually find verifiable data and then being able to make a change and verify that change. So you mentioned carbon place, Brad. I will use another example um, that NAB Ventures have invested in. So this example is around supply chain reporting, um, and it's an Australian company called Giora. It's a software platform uh, built on blockchain technology for agri-supply chains. 
So their focus is to allow farmers, agribusinesses, and uh, financiers to trace, trade, um, and finance agri-assets um, on the farm and throughout the supply chain. So I think if I really bring that at a high level, it's producing verifiable stories about your supply chain with data to prove your sustainability efforts. Very exciting and forward-looking. And, and Deb, I was going to pivot to asking you what's next in RegTech, although you've already taken a, a very forward-looking view in what you've described, but are there other particular emerging areas on the horizon that you'd call out? Yeah, absolutely. And even if I take a step back, I think the challenge to the market that I would give is it's worth mentioning that data platforms and reflecting on what Bill was saying, data platforms uh, haven't always traditionally considered themselves reg tech, but they are now growing into that reg tech community to help businesses uh, tackle sort of the challenges posed to us with, you know, data collection, organization, minting, risk, reporting requirements. So I think a great example of that is uh, the RegTech Association has an annual RegTech Awards, and they've now started including an ESG award in their annual awards ceremony. So this actually challenges businesses that potentially A, didn't consider themselves RegTech or, you know, in the business of collecting and, you know, verifying and making sense of data to consider themselves as potentially a reg tech partner with an ESG lens. So I think that's sort of important to see that in the market and sort of continue to challenge businesses to think like that. Like you might be a data provider, but how do we sort of mix, as Bill was saying, you know, new and existing regulations and the role in data of us, you know, complying and even accelerating sort of past what compliance is and ensuring we're meeting the ever-changing needs of our customers, as you were mentioning, Brad. A lot of really exciting stuff happening there, Deb, and uh, and I'm glad you give the shout-out there to the RegTech Association and the, the very forward-looking vision that their CEO, uh, Deborah Young, is, is promoting there, uh, which I think is very helpful to the industry as a whole. So, Deb, thank you, and, and of course, a big thank you to our special guest, Bill Cullen. Ahead on Nav Digital Next, we're going to look at open banking with a comparative lens across the UK and Australian experiences thus far. We'll look at initiatives for helping to retrain mature workers with the skills for the digital economy, hitting some of the lessons from Singapore's experiences. And as we mentioned, we're going to look at the role of fintech in supporting the path towards a decarbonised economy, including with initiatives like Nav's uh, Carbon Place. So please join us again then. I'm Brad Carr, and thanks for listening on Nav Digital Next.